Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. I'm happy to welcome Roy Matthews back to the program. Roy is a Young Voices contributor and and just an all-around great guy. Roy, there's probably more I'm not telling the audience about you, but take just a second here and, and talk to us about uh, the different hats you wear. Well, thanks. Good to be back. Uh, I am currently an innovation fellow with Young Voices, where I mostly write on uh, energy technology, uh, innovative technologies, whether that touches defense or whether that touches railroads today. Yeah, we're going to be talking railroads. I'm, I'm excited about this. I mean, it wasn't that long ago we had a looming rail strike that was being threatened. And it sounds like uh, that threat has been averted, but there are still some pretty big concerns. In particular, in a piece you wrote for RealClearMarkets.com, apparently the Federal Railroad Administration is pursuing non-sequiturs over safety. Talk to me about the safety issues, and then we can talk about uh, what the Federal Railroad Administration is doing in response to those. Right. So the strike was averted and that was um, back in December. But this um, FRA rule really predates this strike. Um, What the FRA is attempting to do is the FRA has um, put forth a proposed rule where um, freight rail, freight rail lines across the country would be mandated to have at least two people um, for their crews. Now, the reason this is so controversial is back in 2019 under the Trump administration, um, the FRA put forth this same exact rule, but then there were some studies that really dug into the data and they couldn't really find a a safety justification for mandating two-person crews, so they rescinded it. But now under the Biden administration, they have um, reauthorized it. And um, the company I used to work for, AII, Alliance for Innovation and Infrastructure, wrote a pretty in-depth paper looking at um, accident rates and the actual safety data. And we found that there really was no heavy set data to really support this rule. So talk to me a little bit about uh, when, when we talk about safety issues for these crew members. Um, those of us who aren't familiar with what a railroad worker does in the course of a day's work, when you have a single crew member with responsibility for a particular train, how much are we putting on their shoulders? It, it is a pretty demanding job. There's no doubt about that. Um, the rail unions that are that are initially behind this rule um, do have um, brought up some really um, some really important safety issues that they face. Uh, for instance, trains have gotten longer in the last decade. Um, trains could stretch for three miles. So if you're if you're an engineer or you're a conductor, there there today there are um, two people. Uh, in most freight rail cars. If there is an issue with rail car number 37 and you have to stop the train, get out and walk two, three miles to examine a a car that may have um, an issue with it, then you have to walk all the way back. You're putting four miles on yourself right there. And that can be, it can lead to fatigue and fatigue is uh, behind most of these um, human error caused accidents. Um, So the rail unions have raised that. Uh, Also the hours, that most rail workers work is, you know, it pales in comparison to the usual nine to five that you or I might work. Um, you could be working for multiple days away from your family um, and have 14 to 12 hour shifts. Uh, and when you're driving a train, which with some of these long trains, three mile long trains, you need a good three, four or five miles to actually stop the train. Um, so if there's a hazard on the rail, um, you need a real advanced warning 
uh, in order to prevent an accident. Okay, so those are some very legitimate safety issues and, and concerns I think that you're listing out here. Tell me about the Federal Railroad Administration and what is it doing that, that really isn't helping the situation? Right. So most of the uh, disagreements and sort of compromises between um, rail labor unions and the industry have traditionally for the past 100 years been um, been resolved through collective bargaining. The rail unions would get together and the industry would get together and they would hash out a deal where, say, if the rail industry needed to cut a worker or cut a, a crew member from the railroad, um, from the railroad, they uh, the unions would get uh, increased pay and more time off. Right. The FRA is now asserting itself into that conversation by with this mandate. And this is really unprecedented because it takes that collective bargaining process away from the unions and the industry and gives it to the federal government, something that's never been happened before. And um, the industry obviously is very uh, is very concerned about that. And some of these labor unions are also concerned about that as well, because this is just the way it's been done uh, for centuries. So what's the best path forward in your estimation? Um, something that would address both the concerns of these crews and, and the working conditions and the safety issues involved, you know, do, do they need to, do they need to threaten another strike? Is that, what does it take to, to get the, the federal railroad administration to either get out of the way or to step up and, and uh, put the right policies in place? Well, adopting sort of some of these innovative technologies that crew members can use within their cab and on the rail will also will keep railroad competitive because railroad competes with with trucking, with um, shipping, um, and the trucking industry has a much um, a much cleaner track record, let's say, of um, getting deliveries there on time. So rail needs to remain competitive. And if rail isn't competitive, these workers are going to lose their jobs anyway. Um, so, for instance, the FRA has commissioned these studies where um, rail crew members can have these handheld drones that they can take out, deploy and control with like a little controller to examine their rail car and identify any issues or parts missing um, without having to say, like I use the walking example, to walk three miles there and three miles back, right? Um, a lot of the accidents too are due to um, track integrity. If a railroad track or railroad spike is off or damaged in some way, that can cause a derailment pretty regularly. Um, there are drones, there are um, blocking mechanisms that can collect data and analyze and crunch and use all the and use these algorithms and machine learning to crunch all these numbers and figure out and predict where weak points are going to be in railroad tracks. Also, that can minimize these accidents too. Um, again, both both the industry and the unions have very very good points, but taking this taking the collective bargaining process away from the unions and the industry and giving it to the government. That's never a good idea. These folks know the railroad way more than any bureaucrats do. Um, and also, there are all these innovative technologies out there that are either in the testing phase or are already being deployed in pilot projects throughout um, the United States that could really help these folks both keep their jobs and remain safe uh, at work. Yeah, looking at your article, I mean, you reference some of these types of technology, including AI, including different, you know, machine learning algorithms. I, I mean, I had no idea how complex the system was in terms of safety, how to make sure that, you know, you don't get two trains on the same track or, you know, to, to make sure that they're not uh, operating faster than they should be. And anyway, that's it's brilliant that uh, that they have systems that that work, but there are even more innovative ways coming. So it sounds like, in essence, what you're saying is, look, 
the the regulating part seems to be first and foremost in the mind of the Federal Railroad Administration. Maybe they ought to put that on the back burner and and instead uh, look at the needs, what what needs to be addressed in terms of safety first, with a little less emphasis on on the regulation part. Right. And the the rate of human error caused rail accidents for the last 10, 15 years has remained consistent. It's about 35 percent, give or take two or three percent. So these numbers really haven't changed. And so adding more crew members, um, A, that would place more people's lives at risk and B, it may lead to an increase in railroad accidents. So keeping the two person crews, but just augmenting them, making their jobs easier, making making their jobs safer with these innovative technologies. One of them um, are one of them is called full moving blocks or FMBs. These are algorithms that space out trains that are on a single track based on their speeds, based on their length and based on. Um, calculations on their braking technology. So if one train has to come to a halt, then an algorithm in the second train would calculate the amount of space needed to safely bring that wow. train to a halt. And then that could stop the train. Um, in 2019, I also believe um, the federal government, after a pretty bad rail accident in 08, mandated a system called positive train control, which was but which was to be placed on every single mileage of track um, that handled uh, heavy freight or class one freight. That has been completed. That also collects data on train length, on train speed, and that allows the conductor and the engineer in the um, in the locomotive of the train to have all these different data points at their disposal so that they can make the best informed decision uh, in order to keep the train on the roads and themselves safe. Roy, we've got about one minute left in that minute. I just want to I want to bring this home. OK, people say, well, I'm not looking at a career in the railroad, so this stuff really doesn't apply to me. Let's let's tie this in. Why does this apply to the average person? Who doesn't work for the railroad? Why, why is it important that we pay attention to this? Because freight rail moves everything from agricultural products to manufactured products. If something, if a product comes in from a cargo ship in one of the main ports in this country, it will be moved to the interior of this country, to the other side of the country with rail. Um, rail cars have an immense amount of space that they can move hundreds of thousands of pounds of products daily. Um, so if the railroads were to become inefficient, were to become uncompetitive, that is just one more snag in this sort of supply chain fiasco we've seen the last three years. So it's very, very important that the railroads continue to remain profitable and efficient. Beautifully said. Again, we're talking with Roy Matthews. Uh, Roy, tell everybody where they can find you on social media and follow your work. Sure. Uh, I put most of my articles on Twitter. Um, that's your boy Roy. Uh, 98 with an underscore in between boy and Roy. Try not to take myself too seriously on there. Um, and you can find me on LinkedIn too. If you're interested in the, the railroad policy, be sure to check out Alliance for Innovation and Infrastructure at AII.org. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, I'm happy to welcome Alex Petropoulos to the show. This is Alex's first time on Moving Forward with Young Voices. Alex, I know you're a Young Voices contributor, but would you mind telling us just a little bit about yourself, who you are, and what you do? Uh, sure. Yeah. Uh, Alex, I'm Greek-British. I studied discrete mathematics at the University of Warwick. I'm a former collegiate esports athlete. Now I'm a coach. Um, but meantime i am writing op-eds i'm having hot takes 
uh, for young voices. That's what I spend most of my time doing. Discrete mathematics. That that sounds complicated yeah. on a scale that I I'm not sure I could even start to to wrap my mind around. Well, it's got a scary name. I, I I'm happy that I have you on board today. Thankfully, we're not talking about uh, discrete mathematics. So I'm 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 actually very anxious to hear your take on children's online safety. And you have a great article here about let's entrust children's online safety to their parents rather than Mark Zuckerberg. And talk to me first of all about to, let's let's talk about the concerns involving online safety for kids, and then we can we can see how Mark Zuckerberg figures into all of this. Yeah, so, I mean, we have to start by saying any concerns that exist around kids' online safety are valid and warranted, right? Um, it's a very new space for parents. They aren't used to the existing space, and so they're looking for security, and they're looking for structure and protection for their children against what can be bad things on the Internet. The problem comes into how you actually want to go and try and solve it. So the devil's in the details. And so the UK government has been attempting to solve this problem themselves. They've been attempting to tackle the issue of online safety for children with a bill that they're trying to push through parliament called the Online Safety Bill. And what this bill attempts to do is protect children online. But in practice, it puts all of the burden on platforms and it puts Mm. all of the burden on platforms ensuring beyond all reasonable doubt that a child of any ages would never see any content which could possibly be harmful with a very broad definition of harmful um, being used. Wow. Yeah, I could see where that would be a problem. I mean, look, even in the pre-internet days, there was uh, there were harmful things out there. And I'm talking primarily, you know, uh, nudie magazines and so forth. Kids were definitely not supposed to see them. They were kept behind the counter at stores. They were only sold to adults. But you know what? We still found them and we still found our way to find them. And likewise, things that, that uh, could be dangerous to kids can definitely be found online. Why, why is there a a desire to put this on the laps of the, of the platforms. It seems like the platforms already have their hands full with simply keeping the platform up and running and, and perhaps sometimes, you know, trying to, uh, you know, keep, keep people from, uh, you know, tearing each other's heads off in arguments and so forth. Why, why would the suggestion yeah. be to, to, to put it on their laps? Oh, by the way, you have to protect the kids too. Yeah. I mean, so it's not just like put on their laps. It's to the extent that the bosses, the CEOs of tech companies would be legally liable. They could go to jail if they failed to protect um, children online. Um, And what it comes down to is that in part, it's a lack of understanding on how the internet works. And it's almost an exercise in control because at the end of the day, governments have been trying to exercise control over media for as long as media has existed. And the problem is that the internet functions fundamentally differently to how radio, to how television, to how newspaper operates in the sense that all of these other platforms, they're publications. But the internet is about people. It's not a platform. It's it's about people sharing their views. It's not Mark Zuckerberg deciding who gets to share their view. It's It's the will of the people and when you try and fiddle with that, things can get quite complicated. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's sad to see that uh, that so much is being placed on the on those platforms. I think that uh, uh, parents 
should should bear that responsibility, as as you point out. It, are, are there excuses given? I'm curious. The the people who want to to put it, you know, in the in the laps of the uh, of the CEOs of these platforms. What what's their take on on why parents shouldn't be a more active force in in ascertaining that those kids are actually safe online? So, uh, to one extent, it's easy politics, and it's easy for them to sort of shift blame and to point fingers at tech CEOs. But on the other end of the spectrum, you also have the fact that there exists a lot of technical solutions out there that parents have available to them to monitor the content of their kids online. So the, the tech exists for parents to be able to, say, choose and customize what level of moderation they want on their child's TikTok. They can say, how private do I want my child's profile to be? Are people, are strangers allowed to anonymously send them messages? Uh, what level of content moderation should apply to their feeds? All of these technical solutions exist. And platform, platforms largely, especially the platforms that deal with kids like TikTok, have implemented these solutions. The problem is that A, parents don't know about them, and B, I don't think the government knows about them either. Right? And so it's, it's, it's largely a lack of awareness alongside partly a political game being played with wanting to sort of fuel a culture war, wanting to point fingers and blame. But we should take our focuses away from those sort of more cynical Nazi reasons and refocus them to the positive ones, which is that, you know, these technical solutions exist. All we have to do is educate parents and at the end of the day, if you bring parents in to being part of the solution, you're actually going to get a solution that's more effective than anything they're suggesting. Because you were saying yourself, kids found a way to get around those um, barriers that were in place even before the internet. I'm a for ch former child myself. I can tell you I've got around barriers on the internet when I was a kid. The one barrier you can't get around is the parent. Right? If there's a parent <laughs> who's there who's saying, you know, this, I am the law, you don't that's the um, there's no getting around it and you know every child is different so parents will be able to tailor restrictions to how much they want how much trust they want to give to their child and i it's just a better solution that it's frankly been missed out on Alex, something you point out in your article, too, is that there are platforms that, that actually have some very uh, worthwhile tools that maybe parents don't know about. So, again, instead of government, uh, you know, stepping up, well, now, you know, we're going to mandate this. Um, what are some of the tools or what are some of the platforms that actually work with parents to, to help uh, keep tabs on the content that their kids are accessing? Yeah, so I mentioned TikTok before. TikTok is a first mover in this space largely because it has such a large child audience and it's actually done a very good job. They have a feature called family pairing, which means that parents can hook into a TikTok app and connect their profile with children's profiles and that essentially lets TikTok know this user is a child. You now have to treat them like a child because that's at the crux of the problem, right? Is how does a platform actually determine whether someone's a child because the only alternates you actually have are either treating everyone like children and moderating all content down to the level of children which no one wants or requiring people to upload their ids and i can tell you people aren't going to be happy with that people may think that's what they want now in terms of protecting children but at, i don't think people will want to upload their ids to mark zuckerberg's servers and 
you know, I, I think that people are missing out on the solution that's sitting in front of them, to be honest. Okay, it's and it's and it's going to be different, I'm sure, from family to family. I I like what you recommend in your article in that it doesn't appear to be a one size fits all approach. Some kids mm-hmm. will require minimal parental in you know interference or intervention in mm-hmm. terms of monitoring their content. Some kids are going to need a close eye being kept on them, you know, to, yeah. to make sure they're not you know evading those those barriers. But um, I, I love how you set it up that it really the parents are going to the ones who have the they have the most at stake. So they're likely to do the best job. Mm-hmm. Again, we're talking with yeah. Alex Petropoulos. He's a Young Voices UK contributor. Alex, for people who want to follow your work, what's the best way that they can find you either on social media or where can they find more of your writing? Um, I'm all over Twitter. Um, my handle is at Alex T. Pet. And, well, you know, takes on everything. Writing about this, writing about issues, to be honest, that affect young people um, and that young people have a stake in. All right. Fantastic to visit with you. I hope that we get a chance to talk again soon. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Welcome back. This is Moving Forward with Young Voices. We're happy to welcome Jeff Luce back to the program. He is a Young Voices contributor, also a policy assistant at the Conservative Coalition for Climate Solutions, or C3 Solutions. And Jeff, I'm probably leaving a few things off your resume. If there's anything you want to fill in, feel free. Great. Yeah. Thank you for having me, Brian. I'm also a uh, policy fellow at Generation Atomic, which is a nuclear energy advocacy group. Um, So that's the only thing you left off. You got everything else right. Okay, fantastic. Well, you and I have something to talk about that I think uh, is going to make sense to a lot of people, especially if they've just recently fueled up their vehicle. They're they're realizing, oh, my goodness, energy costs are so expensive. They paid their gas bill or their electric bill. Um, Let's talk about bolstering domestic energy security and uh, and how taxes or specifically tax breaks might help to accomplish that. First of all, let's spell out what is the challenge that we're facing right now in terms of uh, domestic energy security? Yeah, so um, I mean, obviously, I'm sure everyone felt it last year with record gas prices as well as natural gas production um, or natural gas prices skyrocketing last year. Um, so obviously, we've all witnessed that it's been affected by inflation. It's been affected by uh, supply not quite meeting demand um, on the global market, especially for oil. Um, and what we're seeing now, especially as tax season kind of comes in and 2023 starts, is kind of a phase out of a lot of key tax uh, policies that were implemented under the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of uh, 2017 um, that have really gone a long way in advancing energy innovation, which in turn bolsters long-term energy security by protecting people from price shocks from global market um, disruptions. Okay, it was a hard year last year, as you point out in your article, and this year looks like it's going to have some challenges as well. Talk to me about how tax code or at least some some adjustments to the tax code might uh, might help to to alleviate some of the pain that we've been feeling. Yeah, definitely. Um, I know tax code and taxes. That's everyone's favorite subject to talk about. Um, but what we're looking at um, right now is immediate expensing, which is set to begin phasing out this year. 
Um, so immediate expensing that allows companies um, to write off the to deduct the full cost of certain investments like um, energy efficiency measures, HVAC equipment um, in the year that they purchase those investments instead of over many years with a multi-year depreciation schedule. Um, so what that means for energy security is it's a kind of a long-term play with energy innovation. Um, so after immediate expensing was implemented under TCJA uh, in 2017, the following year, research and development into energy and environmental projects that jumped by like $3 billion. Um, so what that means, again, it's more of a long-term play with energy security is if businesses and corporations in the private sector, if they are able to write off these key investments the year that they happen, um, they can then invest more of their capital into new technologies and energy efficient technologies, which in turn kind of plays itself out into the market, it lowers prices for things, which will help consumers in the long run. They'll be able to purchase newer equipment, they'll be able to purchase more efficient equipment, um, which again, in terms of energy, it's a very global topic. If there's a price shock or, or if there's a supply disruption, you know, in Saudi Arabia, it's going to affect consumers here. So if we invest in this energy innovation um, further down the road, it's going to protect people um, from supply disruptions. Okay. What about uh, innovation too? I know that. Uh you know, we're always looking for better ways, to, greener ways, you know, to, to utilize energy, to extract it, to, to maximize, you know, the energy that, that we're, we're getting. Could, could those tax breaks uh, further uh, incentivize uh, companies to, to step up their, their innovation? Yeah, definitely. Um, and then uh, another thing that is set to phase out or begin phasing out a little bit is the research and development tax credit. So it's similar mm -hmm. to immediate expensing. It allows companies to deduct the cost of certain R&D investments, um, which will begin phasing out. And the problem with that is once it begins phasing out with inflation, a deduction in five years is going to be worth less, a worth less than a deduction you know, today. Um, so again, these tax, these tax code policies, it, it plays a big factor in driving innovation, especially with the private sector, which again, translates in weighs itself out with consumers being able to access this technology. Is is there support in Congress to to look at revisiting the tax code? I'm, I'm just curious. I know there was there was a lot of drama, you know, getting uh, the, the House speaker elected and and things mm -hmm. settled down and getting back to business, you know, following the first of the year. But um, do, do we see the will in Congress to, to adjust the, the tax code? I think there might be. Um, with the omnibus spending last year, the, in the initial first draft from the Senate side, um, immediate expensing and the R&D tax credit, extending that was included. It just didn't make the final passage. Um, so, I mean, I, I hope I hope that lawmakers would be willing to stomach this. Um, it, you know, it pr helps the environment, it helps consumers, it helps our energy security, it helps the private sector. It's kind of a win-win-win. Um, so, I mean, given all those benefits, you would really hope that lawmakers would be interested in, in implementing these policies. Yeah, I'm just trying to anticipate or at least, uh, you know, imagine what excuses could they give 
that would say, oh, no, no, we don't need to, you know, help out in, in this area because it really seems like this energy policy and, and particularly the, the, the lack of energy security here domestically is impacting so many people across the board because, frankly, you know, the economy runs on it. Um, you would think that that would translate into uh, members of Congress, regardless of partisan differences, wanting to 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 do something to address it. I, I, I'm not sure how it could be made a political football, but I guess anything's possible. Exactly. Anything is possible. So talk to me about uh, with uh, you, you mentioned that uh, while while uh, NEPA in particular hamstrings fossil fuel projects, you mentioned that it also slows down clean energy generation and, and transmission capacity from being built. Is there anything particularly promising you see in terms of clean energy that uh, is, is either underway right now or is on the horizon? Yeah, I, I think one of the well, there's a few things that have happened recently um, last month, the Department of Energy made a historic announcement with fusion, uh, with nuclear fusion, which kind of replicates the same process that stars are made. So it promises us essentially limitless clean energy. Um, So they made a breakthrough with nuclear fusion. um, And what happened is the reactor produced more energy than what was needed to run it, um, although it wasn't for a very long time. So that's that was an important breakthrough that's still kind of decades away most people expect um and then just last week the nrc approved a new scale small modular reactor design um which the nrc is the nuclear regulatory commission so that's big news uh for advanced nuclear because uh, now comp- now other innovators other companies can kind of model their design off of new scales which can kind of speed up the process of getting these smrs approved um, so there's big, big stuff like with that uh, carbon capture. There was another recent development out of the national lab, uh, Pacific Northwest National Lab. Uh, they developed the most cost-effective carbon capture solution we have to date. Um, so there's a lot that's happening with energy innovation, um, and a lot more that can happen, especially in the private side. Uh, again, by extending a lot of these tax provisions, but also addressing NEPA, like you said. I'll, I'll tell you the the small modular reactors really capture my attention. Not that I know much. I'm, I'm not a nuclear physicist or anything, but just the, the prospect of, you know, of reliable and, and, and I think for the most part, very clean, you know, um, mm-hmm. energy generation, man, that, that would be such a huge help. And, and I hope it's something that could be fast tracked. I know the regulatory state moves kind of at its own pace, mm-hmm. but um, the breakthroughs they've had sound very encouraging, something that, uh, you know, I would definitely love to see you know, moving forward much, much quicker. Definitely. Yeah. And nuclear, it gives us, it's our largest source of carbon-free energy. And a lot of these small modular reactors, they're developing, you know, techniques to run off of the spent fuel. So they even have like a lower waste footprint. So it's a lot of really interesting and innovative uh, things that are happening. But like you said, (laughs) regulations and red tape, that's, uh, that's bound to slow it down somehow. So that would be another Thing that would be awesome for uh, you know lawmakers, Congress to address this session is modernizing permitting, modernizing regulatory uh, barriers to get more innovation out there. We've got about thirty seconds here. I just have to ask this for for the longest time, um, environmentalists and I mean the really hardcore environmentalists were very anti nuclear energy. Are some of them starting to come around to to see that it could be a safe, clean alternative? 
Um, yeah, a little bit, not as much as I'd like to see. Um, I think w- what you're seeing, especially with Europe, where they pushed all those green energy mandates, um, they're seeing, and they phased out nuclear power. Now they're seeing that you actually really need nuclear power for the base load. Um, and people are starting to recognize how clean and powerful it is. Um, so you are starting to see a little bit of an appetite for it on progressive sides and in progressive circles, but not as much as you'd like to see and certainly not as much as we need. All right, we're talking with Jeff Luz. Jeff, uh, thank you so much. Where can people find you on social media? Yeah, you can follow our work at uh, c3newsmag.com, where we have daily updates on what conservatives in the free market are doing to address climate change and other energy issues. Welcome back. This is our fourth and final segment today on Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Torben Halbe back to the program. Torben, good to see you once again. For those meeting you for the first time, would you mind telling us just a little bit about yourself? Uh, thanks, Brian. I'm glad to be back, glad to be back here. Sorry about that. Yeah, well, I'm originally a biologist, which uh, you might see from the article which we will discuss now. Um, but what I'm doing now is um, I'm a liberty activist in Berlin, Germany, and uh, that's how I ended up with Young Voices, and uh, well, glad to be here. Well, I'm, I'm very anxious to discuss this article with you, just simply because I have heard a lot of talk. I live, in, I live in a very agricultural area, and there's a lot of talk about genetically modified organisms and, you know, plants where, where their gene technology has been, been put to use, and most of the time, People are kind of skeptical, sometimes very negative about it, but I I see a wonderful article from you that, like America, Europe should use gene technology to save its trees. And I wonder if you could spell out for us, first of all, what is the challenge uh, being faced uh, in Europe concerning trees? Well, it's it's, it's the same challenge as everywhere in the world, basically. Um, With uh, global trade, you will have... um, increased amount of diseases from other uh, continents, basically. Uh, And often you will have trees which are related to the specific tree in Europe or America. Um, For example, if we're talking about elms, there might be another sort of elm in uh, Asia. The same for chestnut. There was another chestnut in Japan. And then basically every plant in existence has some diseases which are specialized on it. So some fungi, for example, which are specialized in, uh, well, uh, living of that plant. And those plants which developed, which had a co-evolution with the respective disease, they have a certain resistance. But then if for some reason that uh, a pathogen escapes to another continent, for example, because you would transport wood there or you transport, you, you would plant the respective other tree variant there. Then you will also import the disease and uh, the native trees will not have any resistance against it. Um, specifically, I mentioned in the article, what's going on right now is the so-called ash dieback, uh, where a lot of Ashes in Europe are dying, uh, continental Europe as well as uh, Britain. 
but I also mentioned an earlier example, which was uh, Dutch Elm disease. It was uh, well before my time, so to speak. Uh, I read that the last some elms survived, but most of them had died back, had died out by the nine by 1990. I was born 19, 19 sorry 1988. So I was too little to <laughs> have seen much of them. And so I was quite surprised when I researched for this article that elms used to be, well, a defining tree of many landscapes, you know, and they're just gone. Yeah, you know, I as I read your article, it, it made me realize, uh, you know, I take trees for granted. You know, I, I, I've i lived in areas that, that have vast amounts of, for instance, pine trees and so forth. But when, when a blight or, or sometimes a particular uh, uh, parasite, the pine bark beetle, uh, has been especially devastating here in the Intermountain West in the U.S. where I live, um, it really can can cause problems. Talk to me about the the genetic solutions that uh, that are available, and and how can they help to fight some of these uh, blights and and other uh, pathogens that otherwise would be wiping out vast amounts of of these trees. Sure. Well, um, well, as you said, trees are vulnerable too, but it needs to be said that they are less vulnerable than crops. Which, uh, which is quite logical if you think about, I don't know, uh, wheat or other crops. They, they put a lot of their energy into their into the corn, I think you would say, like whatever you, people eat in the end, because they have been bred that way. And this is why they have no way really to compete with wild plants, because wild plants do not waste that much of their energy on stuff that is good for people to eat you know um, and this is why gene technology so far has mostly focused on crops on commercial use um, because crops are so very vulnerable to all sorts of uh, diseases or uh, different plant eating uh, pests yeah um, and so this is why what's happening in the United States now, namely to use gene technology on a tree, which is not even used commercially, uh, but the plan is to just, uh, well, rewild the tree with this one change so that it can resist the disease, which originally nearly wiped out the American chestnut. chestnut. And actually it's just a very little change. They just took one, gene from wheat uh, and put it into uh, well, the genome of the, of the tree. And so far, all of the, the trees which have that gene are uh, clones. So the next step will be to mix them up with the remaining living trees in the wild to get a better mix of genetics. You know, If they all are clones, they're very vulnerable to uh, a lot of diseases which might come along. Um, so yeah, and what this one gene does, it, uh, it is able to neutralize the acid which the uh, fungus is using to attack the bark. It's like a bark fungus, which, which it will grow in the bark, and it needs to kind of dissolve it. And they cannot do this if this uh, specific gene is around, which is, uh, it, it will only get activated even when uh, the attack happens. So it's very uh, efficient and uh, 
Yeah, that is uh, that is fascinating uh, technology as well as as the biology that goes into this. I, you know, uh, where where you are a biologist and you you understand that I this this is new to me, but but absolutely fascinating and and of course I hopefully we, we're not having to you know to to stretch people's imaginations too far as well. Why would we want more trees? I mean, those trees are a huge benefit in in so many ways. I didn't realize has Europe struggled with with these blight problems in in its uh, in its uh, uh, tree population for some time? Has this been a, a problem? Yes. Um um as, as I said, the uh Dutch elm disease it started way back I think in the 1920s because um, Global trade has been around for quite some time now, um, and it's a huge benefit, of course. We all love global trade, uh, but this is just one uh, trade-off which we have to deal with. Um, and yeah, it's been around for some time. It will continue to be around. And what's been tried so far is to use breeding. I think both for the elm and for the ash, they're breeding programs. And the thing is, breeding might work, but it's, you know, it's just risky. It might not work. And if you don't use gene technology, you're just missing an important tool, basically, which might make all the difference. Um, the thing is, uh, the American Chestnut Foundation, which is going to save the chestnut in the United States, they also tried breeding, so they were open to different solutions. They, they simultaneously tried breeding and gene technology. Uh, but in the end, the breeding couldn't keep up, um, which the, the, the cause seems to be that, well, when you breed, you try to, um, how to put it, you, can, uh, you cannot do transgenics, right? You can only use the genes that are somehow around in the species or you do some crossbreeding with related species. So they also tried breeding, uh, the crossbreeding of the American chestnut with the, I think, Japanese one or something. But of course you can't do too much of that because then, well, where's your American chestnut if it's just genes from some other <laughs> foreign species, you know? So you have to kind of limit that. And then uh, another issue seems to be that while there are these resistance genes in the American chestnut, they are widespread over different chromosomes. And uh, then if it was just one chromosome, you could, I don't know, get it into some line and key, and it would maybe remain there. But if you have to mix like dozens of chromosomes, it will take probably centuries uh, to, to get that right because uh, sexual reproduction is a kind of random process. You know, there's always some parts from, the, from both parents and then, you know, it's very complicated if it's spread over a lot of chromosomes. Well, I appreciate your explanation, and thank you for opening my eyes, as well as our listeners' eyes, to uh, some possibilities that I'm guessing a lot of us didn't know existed simply because we don't run in the right circles like you do. Again, we're talking with Torben Halba. Torben, where can people follow you on social media? ego-institute.org.